Welcome to the Redeemer Church Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are blessed as you join us in walking through the Word of God together. To learn more about our ministry in St. Albans, Vermont, please visit RedeemerChurchBT.com. In Him also you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were raised with him through the faith and the powerful working of God, who were raised with him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood between against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed his rulers and authorities, and put them to open shame by triumphing, triumphing over them in him. Thanks be to God. Uh, so I have been a little under the weather this week, uh, so I will try to get through this sermon with as few sniffles and coughs as possible. Uh, so if you're someone who just can't stand the sound of sniffles, I want to just kind of apologize in advance for that. Um, all right. So I'm sorry, Kayla. There will be some snippies. All right. I can't get rid of it completely, even though I tried. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Redeemer Church. I'm so glad to, uh, to see you guys here this morning. Uh, if you don't know, we are currently walking through the letter that Paul wrote to the Colossian church. Uh, and the main theme of this letter, first and foremost, kind of above anything else, is how Jesus is preeminent, how he is first. He is primary and superior than all things which he has created. And if he is greater, if, if it is true that he is greater than anything else in this world, then how could any other worldly religion or philosophy or worldview devised by man or demon ever hold a candle to what is found in Christ? And that question is essentially what we explored last week as we briefly looked at two man-made philosophies and religions that stand opposed to what is offered in and through Christ. And we looked at how it makes absolutely no sense for a believer to need to seek wisdom or, or to seek fulfillment in anything else or in anyone else other than Jesus our Lord. Right? Because it's chapter 2, verse 10 clearly states, we have already been filled in Him. We've been filled in Christ. Our hearts are already occupied, and there are no deep, dark recesses of our hearts where Jesus can't reach in and make us whole. And there's no solace, there's no wisdom or forms of knowledge or spiritual elevation that must or, or even can be sought apart from simple faith in Jesus in order, us, in order for us to feel complete, in order for us to feel whole. We have been made whole in Christ despite what our fleeting and untrustworthy feelings have to say about it. And this week, Paul continues this theme of who believers are in Christ. And he speaks to them of their, person, their personal realities. 
He speaks to them of what happened to them because of Christ and the wonders of their existence being in Christ. And so my prayer for this morning is that we're, we're encouraged by this passage. Because as we go out and we, we live the Christian life, it is so easy to actually forget our identities. It is so easy to forget who we are in Christ and what that actually means. And whether it be because we, we have employees saying things to us, whether it be because we have friends or family or, or whoever saying things to us, or we have worldly circumstances happen, we can often forget our identities in Jesus Christ. And so I hope that we're not only encouraged, but that our hearts and souls are, are also just simply warmed by these truths. How much do we, do we just need to be comforted? By these things. Now, I will say that there is a lot of doctrine, there's a lot of theology that Paul tries to just kind of cram into these few verses. He's really good at doing that. And some of these may be very familiar to you, these may be very familiar teachings, and others may not be so familiar to you. But remember, as we spoke of last week, doctrine and theology are not our enemy. Right? They're not our enemy. Wrestling with jam-packed texts such as this is what actually deepens your roots and builds you up in Christ. And so I want to encourage us to, to embrace it this morning. But as always, let us first pray for the Holy Spirit to guide our way. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for everything that you've given us. And Lord, I want to especially thank you for your word this morning. Lord, thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in this way. That we can, if we want to hear from you, God, all we have to do is, is look to our Bibles. And Father, I pray, Lord, that, that as we go through some of these very familiar, uh, Lord, doctrines, these very familiar teachings of Scripture but that may have been put uh, or may be put in a new way to us that we may have never heard before or maybe that we've heard for the hundredth time. Father, I pray that we are, Lord, just lifted up, God, that we are encouraged, Lord, that we have a new identity in you. And I pray this in your Son's name. Amen. All right, so again, just as a brief reminder, last week we spoke of Paul entreating these believers in the church of Colossae to not be taken captive by philosophies that are of human origin and of demonic influence. That's, that's what we said a lot last week. And he essentially says in verse 10, you know, why would you? Why would you be taken captive by these things? You have everything you need already inside of you. You have been filled to the brim with Christ, who is in authority over all of these worldviews uh, that would have you submit to them instead of Christ. And so, so why would you be held captive by them? And in our passage this morning, beginning in verse 11, Paul begins to describe the realities associated with being in Christ. Now, I think this is very helpful. I think this passage is very helpful because if there's one thing that many people love, even Christians, and you know, to be honest, sometimes especially Christians, is living off of platitudes. Living off of platitudes. Because it's a wonderful thing to be able to say, yeah, I'm in Christ. Sure. Yeah, I'm in Christ. But it's a whole thing altogether, or a whole other thing altogether, to actually know what that means. 
right? If somebody were to come to you right now and say, okay, you're in Christ, right? Tell me what that means. Would you be able to give a clear answer? Or are you just living off that platitude? And so this morning, the passage that we're going to be looking at, Paul is going to lay out a few of the realities that we as believers experience being in Christ. Because we, we, we want to know what that means. And so let's take a look at verse 11 as Paul shares with us the first reality. He says, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now, how could it get any clearer than that, right? Makes total sense. You guys fully understand what it means to be in Christ based off of that text, right? Now, scholars actually go back and forth as to why Paul kind of somewhat abruptly brings circumcision into this letter. Some believe that it was because uh, the philosophies or the heresies that Paul was speaking about in the earlier verses uh, that were trying to come into the church of Colossae was the same heresy that had infiltrated the Galatian church. In the church of Galatia, a sect of Jewish men claiming to be Christians came into the church and were teaching that in order for Gentile believers to truly be part of the new covenant in Jesus, then they must follow the old covenant law, specifically the law of circumcision, since the outward sign of belonging to God's people, more on that in a moment, was circumcision. And so these Judaizers, which is what they were called, said that faith in Jesus was not enough. That it wasn't enough. This ritual must accompany that faith. And of course, Paul had some very harsh words for these Judaizers. Now, this was a big deal in the first century church. This issue was so important that in Acts 15, there was an entire church council revolving around this very issue of, of Gentiles must first becoming Jews through rituals such as circumcision before they could become fully Christians. There was an entire church council on it. And so, some biblical scholars believe that this is why Paul brings up circumcision now. Because the church of Colossae was experiencing the same false teaching from Judaizers. Now, personally, I'm inclined to think that may not quite be the case. That might not really be why Paul brings it up. There's kind of little evidence for that, and he certainly doesn't uh, explicitly address the Judaizers like he does in the book of Galatians. But regardless, Paul's primary reason for bringing the ritual of circumcision into the conversation was to actually explain a very real experience that happens in the life of all believers, of all of us. Now, let me try to explain it as succinctly as I can. Now, firstly, circumcision was the seal or the sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham and his offspring. It was first instituted in Genesis 17 and was to be done to Jewish boys eight days after birth. And it was the sign to show that you and your household belonged to the people of Israel, that you were cut apart from the rest of the world and that you were in covenant relationship with Yahweh, with God. However, what was slowly forgotten by many over the centuries and even millennia was that circumcision was not simply meant to be a physical thing that happened to males. And, and once you received it, then you were in the covenantal club. Rather, 
the outward physical circumcision was always meant to be representative of a much more important circumcision. And this much more important circumcision was mentioned in various places in the Old Testament. One example being Jeremiah 25 through 26, which says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all who are circumcised only in flesh. Only in flesh. Egypt, Judah, Edom, Ammon, Moab, and all who live in the wilderness and distant places. For all these nations are really uncircumcised. Probably, probably be news to them. But all these nations are really uncircumcised. Even the whole house of Israel is uncircumcised in the heart. In the heart. And so there were Jews who had this outward physical circumcision, right? And though that uh, they... Uh, and they thought, rather, sorry, they thought that simply because they had the sign, that therefore they had the inward reality. But they showed that through their disobedience to God, and through their unrepentant wickedness, that this circumcision of the heart actually never occurred. It never occurred. And so you see, it's not the circumcision of the flesh that God was primarily concerned about. It was this circumcision of the heart. That's what truly mattered. And this is essentially the issue that Jesus was speaking about when he said to the Pharisees and the Sadducees in Matthew 3, 9. When he said, And do not presume to say to yourselves that we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able to, uh, able to from these stones, raise up children from Abraham. They simply assumed on their heritage on the fact that they had the covenantal sign of circumcision, that they belong to God's people. But Jesus is saying to them, you're, you're missing what truly matters. You see, the circumcision of the flesh was always meant to be a symbol pointing to an inward spiritual cleansing, a, a cutting away of sin from the heart. And this was done in the Old Covenant through faith and obedience to God and in trusting in what the sacrificial system pointed to, to the perfect sacrifice that was coming in Jesus on the cross. Though those in the Old Testament couldn't see it as clearly as we do now, this side of the cross. And so now Paul, here in verse 11, is declaring that all believers... All believers, Jews, Gentiles, men and women alike, all experience circumcision in Christ. But Paul explains that this is not the physical sign of circumcision of the old covenant. That sign is no longer needed because what it pointed to has now fully come in Jesus. That's why Paul says that this is not a circumcision that was made with hands. This is the, the true circumcision that is made without hands. As Paul says in Romans 29, this true circumcision that all believers experience, it is a matter of the heart. And, and who does it? It is done by the Spirit. It's done by the Spirit. At the moment of our conversion, at the moment of our salvation, right when we become true children of God, Christ, through His Spirit, does a miraculous work of circumcision on our hearts. And Paul describes what this circumcision looks like in verse 11. Right? He describes it as putting off the body of flesh. 
And what, what Paul is referring to here is our natural sinfulness. Our natural sinfulness. Paul in Galatians 5.24 describes our flesh as having passions and desires. And so flesh here in Colossians does not mean our actual physical bodies, but rather our fallen sinful natures with all of its passions and desires. All of its evil wants and needs. Yeah, right. And upon the very moment of your conversion, believer, it is as if Jesus does spiritual surgery on your heart. He cuts away your old sinful nature. The person you once were, a a lover of darkness, a liar, an adulterer, a murderer, a hater, a slanderer, is all cut away. All of it. And in its place, he put a new nature, a new self, as Paul describes it in Colossians 3. Making you a new creation, as Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 5. And so you no longer have to live enslaved in the flesh to your sin with all of its influences. Rather, you are now now free. You're free to live in Christ, which you could not do before this circumcision of the heart. Before this cutting away of your sin that can only come through the power and the work of Jesus through the Holy Spirit. Now, how glorious is it that when you became a Christian, your old nature, your old heart was circumcised. It was cut away, and you are now living in your new nature in Christ. That's, if you're a believer in this room, that's the reality. That's your reality that you live in right now. Right? That's not something that's far away. That's not something that, that you receive in heaven. That's something that you are living in now. You have received that circumcision of your heart. Now, that was probably the most I've said the word circumcision in my entire life. (laughs) And man, if you're new here, what a weird message to come in on. But praise God. Praise God, if you're a believer, that you have received this circumcision not made with hands. It's a wonderful thing. And what is the beautiful cherry on top is that there is no reversal to this. There's no reversal to it. You can't reattach that which Jesus has cut away from your heart. You can't. Now, this doesn't mean, as we say all the time, that you will never struggle with sin in this lifetime. I can attest to that. You will still struggle with sin. Paul makes that clear in Romans 7, 15, where he says, For I do not understand my own actions. I don't understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, namely, obey Christ, but I do the very thing that I hate, meaning sin. And that's the Apostle Paul speaking. That's the Apostle Paul. And so it is true that we have been made brand new, that our hearts have been circumcised, and there is a true transformation that has taken place, but... Just like Paul, as long as we are still in in our fallen bodies, the sinful remnants of our old nature still try to cling on to us. And we'll still wrestle with that. But while our current reality in Christ, being circumcised in our hearts, does not mean that we will not struggle with sin this side of glory, it does mean, 
It does mean that the work God has done in your heart, the removal of the flesh, is a work that cannot be undone. It cannot be undone. Just as the outward sign of circumcision could not be undone, how even more so can the true inward reality of the circumcision of the heart in Christ not be undone? We can be secure and we can be confident in who we are now in Christ. Now, Paul goes from the reality of the circumcision of our hearts in Christ to the next reality of our being in Christ. Namely, we are unified with Christ in a profound and mysterious way, so much so that it is if we were buried in his death with him and risen with him in his resurrection. And this union with Christ is actually displayed in our baptism. And so in verse 12, Paul points, to, uh, points the Colossians back to their baptism, not because the ritual itself actually converts a person, but because it is a public expression of an inward experience that has already taken place in you. Let's take a look at verse 12. I'll read verse 11 as well so we can get the entire flow of Paul's thought. It says, in him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, some will take this verse and they'll say, you see, you, you, you see, Paul here is teaching baptismal regeneration. That's a, that's a fancy term that means that you will have some people who will try to teach you that it is through the act of baptism that someone is actually saved. That there's a profession of faith in Christ, but that doesn't get you quite completely across the line that you have to be baptized in order to be fully saved. That is not at all what Paul is teaching here. In fact, I would go so far as to say it would actually be against Paul's own teaching to get rid of one ritual that people said you must perform in order to be saved, circumcision, and simply just replace it with another. There's no, there's no purpose there. And he would be under his own condemnation in Galatians 1. So what is Paul saying here in verse 12? Well, simply put, Paul is saying that in baptism, we are showing our identity, our identifying with Christ in his death on the cross and our identifying with Christ in his resurrection. You see, another thing that happened upon the moment of salvation is that it is as if we, in our mysterious union with him, like Christ, were buried. It is like we were buried with Christ. Our old selves, who we were before Jesus broke into the darkness to save us, died and was buried right alongside of Jesus in the tomb of Joseph. And so there's this, this real death that we experienced, but it was, it, was a, it was a death to our sin. But Jesus, just as Jesus did not remain dead and in the tomb, we too were raised again in newness of life. 
through faith in the power of God, the same power, Paul says, that raised Jesus from the dead, you and I, believer, are living a brand new life. We're living a brand new life. And it's far different than the one that we led before. This is a life that is indwelled with the Holy Spirit. This is a life that can now, with a joyful and grateful heart, obey God and know what it truly means to be be loved by Him. And not only to be loved by Him, but to, to actually love Him for the first time. And that's what baptism is a picture of. Going down into the waters of burial, dying to our old selves, and being brought out of the waters in the resurrection of a new, brand new life in Christ. But I do want you to take notice that Paul didn't say in verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised through faith in God. That's, that's not what he says here. Rather, he said, through faith in the powerful working of God. And you find that kind of interesting? Because you, you would think that just saying faith in God would, would be enough. But he says in faith in the powerful working of God. Now, Paul is not saying that faith in Jesus is, is not what saves you. Right? Rather, I believe what Paul is getting at is that you must have faith in the entirety of who Jesus is. In the entirety of who God is in order to be saved. The Greek word for working here in verse 12 is actually the same word used for energy or power. Now, you cannot separate God's power from himself. His power is one of his essential attributes called his omnipotence. His omnipotence. And it does not exist independently from him. You can't separate God's omnipotence from God. God is omnipotent. Rather, true saving faith or sorry, rather. Uh, so what I believe Paul to be saying here is that saving faith includes far more than just faith that God or Jesus exists. I think that's what Paul's saying here. Because anyone, even demons, can have faith in the mere existence of God, right? Rather, true saving faith includes with it the faith, as one commentator said, that God and God alone is able and powerful enough to save us from our sin, to raise us in newness of life as surely as he rose Jesus from the grave. And this is actually the kind of faith that you see Jesus commending again and again in the Gospels. Not just just faith that he exists, not just faith that he walked the earth, but faith that he actually has the power to do the things that he says he can do. I just pulled two of many examples I found, the first being the leper in Matthew 8. He said to Jesus, Lord, if you are willing, you can heal me. You can. He never questioned the ability of Jesus to heal him. He believed not just in the existence of Jesus, but in his power to heal Now, another example that may be even more clear is Matthew 28 through 29. In this passage, Jesus asks two blind men if they believe that he is able to heal them. To that, they answer, yes. And Jesus says, according to your faith, be it done to you. As Sam Storm says, Paul here wants to highlight that saving faith includes knowing and trusting in the almighty power of God 
the limitless power of his divine will to do for us what we are helpless and hopeless to do for ourselves. Raise us to a new life. So that's the kind of faith that we have to have. It's not enough to just kind of have this intellectual ascent that, that Jesus died on a cross. That, that even this intellectual ascent that, yeah, okay, maybe Jesus died on the cross for sinners. But you actually have to believe that Jesus has the power to forgive sinners, to, to raise you to a newness of life. That's part of saving faith. So now let's recap a moment with the help of a Bible teacher who says, we as believers have no need for external circumcision. This is kind of bringing these last two points together. We as believers have no, uh, no need for external circumcision. You have already received the true circumcision of the heart. Your whole sinful nature has been cut away. And you receive this circumcision by virtue of your union with Christ by faith. When he was buried, your former wicked selves were buried with him. When he was resurrected as new creatures, you were resurrected with him. All by the power of God when you believed. It is done. It is complete. The old nature is dealt with. New life. Your eternal life has begun. Total, complete, full salvation is yours. And so those are the first realities of being in Christ. How wonderful is being united with our Lord Jesus. Now in verse 13, Paul backs it up a bit. He, he kind of rewinds the tape to bring the believers back to their state before their union with Jesus through faith. And I believe he does this to kind of kindle a heart of gratitude in the hearts of these believers in Colossae, and to be honest, with our own hearts as well. First, he addresses their old state of being by saying, and you who were dead in your trespasses. And you who were dead in your trespasses. Now, we mentioned a few months ago how the word trespasses, or sometimes called transgressions, was one of the three primary words used in the New Testament for sin. It means to go beyond a set boundary, to step over the line, as it were. The idea is that God set the standard for morality in his law that has been written on all of mankind's hearts, by the way, according to Romans 2. And all of us, every single one of us, has stepped over that line in defiance. Now, what is so horrific is that because of our sinful trespasses, the natural state of man is death. Is death. Paul repeats himself with almost the exact words in Ephesians 2, where he says, we are dead in our trespasses and sin. The word that is used for dead in these verses in Colossians and Ephesians is actually the Greek word nekros, which is where we get the word necrotic. And unsurprisingly, it means dead. It means dead. Now, obviously, Paul here doesn't mean that unbelievers are, are physically dead, like they're just kind of walking around like a bunch of zombies. No, what, what Paul means here is much more serious. It's far more serious because all of us before Christ and every person to have ever lived are naturally in a state of spiritual death. All of them are spiritually 
death. If you're a believer, there was once a time where you were spiritually dead. And those who do not believe in Jesus, even if they are the nicest and most sincere Mormon or Jehovah's Witness or New Ager, Hindu, Buddhist, or member of any other religion or worldview, are by the words of the Apostle Paul spiritually dead. Even those who claim to be Christians or have gone to church since they were a child or their parents' parents were Christian or that they've been baptized but have not truly placed their faith in Jesus Christ are spiritually necrotic. John Stott said it correctly when he said, lots of people who make no Christian profession, profession whatsoever and even some who do hollowly, who even openly repudiate Jesus Christ appear to be very much alive. One has the vigorous body of an athlete, another the lively mind of a scholar, a third the vivacious personality of a film star. Are we to say that such people, if Christ has not saved them, are dead? Yes, indeed, we do and must say this very thing. For in the sphere which matters supremely, which is neither the body, nor the mind, nor the personality, but the soul, they have no life. And you can tell it. They are blind to the glory of Jesus and deaf to the voice of the Holy Spirit. They have no love for God, no sensitive awareness of His personal reality, no leaping of their spirits toward Him in the cry, Abba, Father, no longing for fellowship with His people. They are as unresponsive to Him as a corpse. And so we should not hesitate to affirm that life without God However, however physically fit and mentally alert the person or spiritually sounding their speech may be, is a living death. And that those who live it are dead even while they are living. And that, my friends, is the state that Paul is speaking of here. This was the state of the Colossian church before Jesus. And this was our state before Jesus. Not, not simply spiritually sick. We didn't have a, a spiritual flu before Jesus. We were spiritually dead before Jesus. Paul then adds on to this bad news and says that not only were the Colossians spiritually dead, but they weren't even part of the Jewish community. Partakers in the old covenant sign and belonging to God's people, belonging to Israel. And so the picture that Paul is painting is that of individuals who are completely and absolutely cut off from God in their natural states. And these Gentile Colossians couldn't even do what the Pharisees and Sadducees did and brag about their Jewish heritage. They were utterly and hopelessly spiritually dead. And again, that, my friends, was you and I whether you are of Jewish or Gentile descent. But brothers and sisters, Paul then breaks into this glorious news that should set a fire within your hearts. He breaks into the next reality of being in Christ that hearkens to some of the realities that we have already spoken of because though you were dead, even though you were absolutely necrotic in your sin, even though you were completely cut off from God, He made you alive. He made you alive. He made us alive together with Christ. 
I know this is essentially repeating what we spoke about already, but what, what a better truth to spend more time on than this. Though we were spiritually lifeless, even though we were in a state of moral rot and completely blind to the incomprehensible beauty of Jesus, God entered into our lifeless souls and brought us up from the grave into newness of life with His Son. All out of grace. There's nothing we did to deserve that. Nothing. And not only did He bring us a new life in Jesus, the end of verse 13 brings us to our next reality, which is that we are now a people totally forgiven. We're forgiven of everything. In Christ, we have been forgiven of all of our trespasses, all of our sins. Now, how did God forgive us of these trespasses, of our sins? Paul answered that in verse 14. And he says, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with all of its legal demands. I believe all of us, to one degree or another, knows what it is like to be under some sort of debt. For some, it can be crimpling and anxiety-inducing. And whether it be medical bills or student loans or, or house or car payments, being under debt can be a horrible, horrible feeling. And what Paul is saying is that our sin, our transgressing God's law, has put us in debt to God. And that debt is infinite because we have sinned against an infinitely holy God. This debt that we owe to God because of our sin is not like that of a car or house loan that we can pay off if we simply just work hard enough and send in a check each month. There's no amount of good deeds that we could ever do, no, no matter how charitable or selfless they may seem, that could ever pay off this infinite mountain of debt that we owe. Now, human debt has consequences if it is not paid off, right? And likewise, the debt that we owe to God has its own legal demands in His courtroom. And Scripture is clear that these legal demands that stand hostile to us because of our indebtedness to God, because of our sin, is what? It's death. It's death. Eternal spiritual death in hell. But... Here again is the glorious news of the gospel of God's grace. As soon as you place your faith in Christ, God took that record of debt that was set against us, and Paul says at the top of verse 14, he canceled it. He canceled it. The Greek word here being more accurately translated as, as blotting out or, or erasing. God erased or blotted out any existence of your debt, of your sin. It has been totally and completely forgiven. All of it. And the way God was able to erase this debt from our account is told to us in verse 14. He did so by setting it aside and nailing it to the cross. He took that ratty old paper that held our record of debt and he nailed it to the cross of Christ. Now it's important to know here that just because your debt was blotted out by God does not mean that your debt of sin was not paid for. It had to be paid for. 
it certainly was paid for, and it was paid for in full by Christ, by Jesus on the cross. He paid that infinite debt that you owed to God. Accepting the wrath of the Father and dying was the currency that Jesus used to pay our debt. To pay our debt. It was the blood of the Son that was used to blot out our record of debt. And it was the nails that pierced His hands and feet that were used to nail it to the cross. And how wonderful is it that when Jesus was brought down from that cross, after He paid for our sin by accepting the full wrath of God the Father on our behalf and dying, that our sinful record did not come down off the cross with Him. It didn't come down off the cross with Him, and it doesn't follow us around now. God doesn't hang that record of dead over your head trying to remind you of who you were before Him. It's gone. It is nailed to the cross, and it remains nailed to the cross. It is crucified. It is forgiven and erased forever. The hymn writer, Henry Francis Light, wrote it beautifully. He said, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. That is the last reality of being in Christ that we have time to cover this morning. I know that we read verse 15, but we'll have to wait to cover that one next week. But please pray with me. Lord, I pray, God, that you help us not forget of our reality, of our identity, of being in you. So often does this world and, and our enemy want us to forget, Lord, who we are in you, to remind us again and again of our old selves, of who we were before we trusted in you. And so, Father, I pray, Lord, God, that your Holy Spirit just keeps on the forefront of our mind this week, Lord, that we are forgiven. Lord, that, that we have been on the receiving end of the circumcision of the heart, God, that our old sinful natures, Lord, were cut away from us, that we died to them, and that a, a new person, a new self, has been put in its place. Father, we love you. Pray this in your son's name. Amen.